Hi, everyone. Welcome to MedTech Talk. This is the podcast affiliated with the MedTech Conference, and I'm your host, Tom Salemi. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, the MedTech Conference we've been working on is really shaping up to be something uh, really terrific. Uh, I ask you, just go to medtechconference.com, check out the agenda. It's a very easy URL to remember, and I think you'll agree. Uh, we've been able to craft a really, um, really interesting and, and, and deep diving agenda that is looking at providing solutions for the problems and challenges facing medtech executives, investors, and entrepreneurs. And, and we could not have done it without the, uh, the help of our advisory board, of course, but most importantly, our co-chairs. And, and I'm happy to be joined by one of our co-chairs today on the podcast, Kevin Hikes. Kevin is an operating partner at Versant Ventures. Uh, he's also CEO of an early stage company, Metavention. But Kevin, throughout his career, uh, has had many roles and has mostly been a late stage guy. He was with Medtronic for over 15 years. Uh, he was CEO of Visiogen. He was CEO of Cameron Health. Both companies presented unique challenges uh, that Kevin, Kevin and the team at those two companies were able to overcome and lead to really, really uh, outstanding outcomes. And I'll let Kevin uh, share those details a bit later on the podcast. So we're really happy to have Kevin uh, as part of the MedTech Conference. We think his, uh, his work shows uh, on the agenda. Again, go to medtechconference.com. And uh, as host of the MedTech Talk podcast, I'm really uh, pleased to have Kevin with us today. He's a, he's a really good guy. And I hope you enjoy this conversation. Kevin Hikes, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to chat with you today. I'm glad to have you on here. So it's what is it in Minneapolis now? Is it like 29 degrees over there, 30 degrees? It's uh, 30 degrees with a light snow. <laughs> so you, do you miss California at all? I know you were in California for a time. With Vigian and, and a few other things, but uh, ever think of those yes, days? No, I do. I think about it often, especially in February. Um, but it's uh, great to be back in Minneapolis, which is my home and a uh, longtime um, career uh, home with Medtronic. So it's great to be here and back in the startup environment here for the first time. It really so it's is fun. But it, I, uh, it really I is wish a... it was sunnier and warmer. <laughs> I guess we can't everything. It is it is a great ecosystem for uh, for medtech. Although I know there's a some concern in that area, especially uh, well everywhere about the VCs investing in in early stage investing. You happen to uh, to latch on to one of them that uh, continues to look at medtech versus ventures. Uh, talk a bit yeah. about your your role with with Versant and uh, what, what what have you been doing for them, and how did it lead to Medavention, which is the company you're currently involved in. Yeah, so I guess the, the short answer is, is I was involved with Versant. They were an investor in Cameron Health, actually the, the first investor. So I got to know them quite well. And when I uh, uh, left the Boston Scientific uh, Cameron venture in 2012, um, they suggested that I spend some time with them kind of behind the curtain looking at some deals and think about whether there's a role I could play there. And so I did some of that. And it's interesting. Um, I think ultimately I'm an operating guy and I, uh, I'm not sure I could be truly uh, satisfied or effective, um, you know, in a full-time sort of VC capacity, if they'd have me even. Um, but it's fun for me to spend 10 to 20% of my time, depending on the week, 
um, helping them look at deals and uh, talking to management teams and helping them recruit and understand uh, industry trends. So it's a fun way to keep sort of uh, visibility to what's going on across the industry. And certainly here in Minneapolis, as probably the only active VC investor now in uh, MedTech, it's a great way for me to, to kind of see what's coming up over the horizon regionally and locally. So it's been productive. But my real job is uh, running a startup, and that's what I like to do most, and I think where I can probably add the most value. I, I read that uh, after the Cameron Health deal, uh, you, I think you described yourself to a newspaper as, as the closer. You kind of come in to a company that's uh, that's been around a bit. Maybe it needs a little redirection. Maybe it doesn't. But uh, you kind of help with, with Cameron and, of course, with Visigen before that. You kind of help it find a, a permanent home. Do you see yourself that way as sort of you, – you mentioned it. You're an operational guy. Do, do you see yourself that way? And what is that – what are the qualities of a of a, a good operational person? Well, yeah, and I think I should probably correct the record. I, I uh, was a little embarrassed that they described me as the closer. I think what I told the writer <laughs> was I was a more of a late-stage guy um, who was more comfortable and maybe more able to add value in, in entities that were scaling and commercializing and or finishing clinical trials and dealing increasingly with, with external constituents, whether they're customers or patients or regulators or, or the markets, investors, et cetera. So, you know, for me, um, growing up as a commercial guy at Medtronic um, and virtually um, all of my roles there, it's where I'm most comfortable. And so, you know, what I found at Visiogen, which was commercializing in Europe and getting ready for the U.S., um, kind of, you know, mid-stage entity that was, uh, it was really fun to get uh, involved with something with a, a great product and a really interesting market and help kind of craft from scratch, um, you know, how, they're, how they'd go to market and how they'd uh, expand within Europe and how they'd get ready for the U.S. market and how they segment and target and position their product, um, in, in that case, in the presbyopia correcting cataract market. Um, and so, and similarly at Cameron, um, they had commercialized in Europe, but we needed to restart there. And obviously we were ramping towards um, a U.S. launch in a very big market and a controversial market with a fair amount of visibility. So that was, again, really fun to get in and, and put the, uh, you know, fine tune our approach in Europe and build a team there and then begin to prepare for a significant U.S. rollout. So that those are the sort of things that I did at Medtronic and uh, that I'm comfortable with and where I think I can add the most value. Um, ironically, I'm now actually, I've, I've violated whatever it is I told that writer because <laughs> I'm running a very early stage venture. And, and this one, uh, you know, has 12 people. We're a Series B. We're doing our first in-human trial um, in New Zealand. It's a very different experience, um, uh, but again, for me, it's been really interesting. It's sort of it's demystified the company foundation elements of the industry, so it's allowed me to kind of go way back to the early point of, of the continuum and understand what it's like. I think I was the second employee. Versant uh, brought me in to consult with the founder, very bright uh, physician scientist, and we ultimately decided to I decided to join full time, and the two of us then started the the company uh, or scaled the company, raised the, the funds. You know, found the building, uh, you know, kind of built the very early infrastructure and, and uh, you know, the, the the strategy that allowed us to raise money now, uh, two or three successive rounds to get this thing launched. So it's been really fun to see that. Um, I think I'm probably uh, not adding as much value in this capacity as I do in a, in a larger, maybe more complicated commercial entity, but it's been really interesting for me and I hope I'm uh, helping guide this little company towards success. But I think I'm perhaps the only non- scientist or physician or engineer in the company. So I'm kind of a lightweight. 
So you you've put aside the the Wild Thing soundtrack and the thick glasses that Charlie Sheen wore in uh, in yeah. Major League and your and your gun early stage. What what uh, it is obviously a different experience running a smaller company uh, than a larger company. A larger company, you have the infrastructure, you kind of know what you need from sales and marketing, and it's sort of getting all those players uh, in sync. I'd have to think that running a startup company is just so much more abstract where you don't know what the answers are. You don't even know what the problems are sometimes until they kind of smack you in the face. It's got to be a, a very different way to, to approach things. Uh, yes, although on some levels, it's it's even more concrete than the sorts of decisions you make as a senior exec at a company like Medtronic or Abbott or Boston. Um, you know, in, in, in my experience, at least, you don't have anyone advising you. You're often looking around for people to bounce your ideas off of. Sometimes you don't have anyone, and so you're sort of stuck uh, making your best assessment of the situation and uh, making a decision. The good news is at, at a startup, you, you learn pretty quickly which are the good decisions and which are the bad ones, and the cycle times are so much more accelerated um, that you can see cause and effect. You can understand if the decision was the right one or maybe partly right, and you can adjust. Uh, and reset and start again. And so I think in, in my experience, at least, you learn so much more quickly. And even though you don't have the big decision support um, infrastructure around you and you don't have the bureaucracy that you need to sell through to make a decision stick, um, you do get to make a lot of decisions and you make them in real time and you learn so much more quickly um, that it's really gratifying. And you can see exactly the results of both your good and bad decision. And you're probably all right with with failure because it's it's not something that like you said with the bureaucracy with the personnel if something goes wrong you need to sort of have some level of damage control after that with this it's 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 much more immediate okay that didn't work let's try yeah. the, the next well, thing yeah you have to be comfortable with that obviously yeah. higher risk on multiple fronts but there's nowhere to hide and you're sort of naked and if you make the wrong decision and it and it costs the company significantly then you're you're held accountable but some people like that and thrive on it so I think it's if you're comfortable in that environment, it's a great way to to spend your time and to make things happen and to to grow little businesses. What is a what a, what is med what is Metavention uh, targeting? What is your focus? Yeah, so Metavention is a uh, is still relatively stealth mode um, interventional diabetes company. So we are developing a novel neuromodulation approach to treat. Um, insulin resistance in type 2 diabetes mm -hmm. effectively. So this involves uh, um, sympathetic tone modulation to restore um, physiologic behavior in a number of organs in the gut that have been demonstrated uh, to be um, pathophysiologic, partly due to high levels of sympathetic tone. So it's sort of turning down the volume on white noise, in effect, that, that people with type 2 diabetes have in their sympathetic nervous system that has a negative effect on um, the liver, the pancreas, the duodenum, the stomach. You know, a, lot of, a lot of work's being done there. Uh, most of it on the GI side, companies like Fractal or GI Dynamics, Valentex, that are looking at ways to replicate the, the positive effects of bariatric surgery on type 2 diabetes, which are widely acknowledged, not totally well understood yet, but trying to kind of figure out how do you do bariatric surgery less invasively. We're taking a slightly different approach and saying, are there, is there a switch um, in the sympathetic nervous system that you can flick on or off that changes the way some of those organs process glucose or insulin or, mm. re or react to insulin? So pretty novel, um, groundbreaking, uh, I think really compelling if we can effectively translate um, the effects we've seen in animals into humans. 
but that's uh, yet to be seen. So it's early, early days, but obviously a huge market um, with almost no device presence of any kind. So a lot of interesting um, factors at work. Is neuro kind of going through, we obviously saw a lot of neuro companies in devices in the late nineties and early two thousands. Um, most of them didn't, some did all right. Some, some less so. Most didn't do well. Um, are we seeing kind of a, a resurgence, a second generation of neuro companies, startups kind of coming around? I just seem to hear more and more about neuro approaches to, to problems that, that hadn't previously been targeted by these kind of companies like yours. Yeah. Well, I think and the answer is yes. And I think uh, earlier in my career, I was the, the commercial head of Medtronic's neurostimulation business, mm-hmm. which back then was you know, primarily spinal cord stimulation for pain and deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's and essential tremor. And those businesses, I think, are seeing a resurgence and companies like Nevro that are figuring out how to deliver more effective stimulation protocols with less battery and, and, you know, and, and energy requirements and the, the ability to recharge through the skin. There's a number of things that are sort of breathing some new life into the more maybe traditional neurostim applications that we've always known of. Um, on the other side, there's, there's a fair amount of interest now in neuromodulation as it relates to um, the central nervous system and sympathetic tone and the role of, of, of sympathetic tone in a number of chronic diseases. Obviously, uh, hypertension and renal denervation is you know, the clearest example of that, but heart failure, um, sleep apnea to some degree, um, diabetes, one we're looking at. Um, you know, there's a number of, of uh, conditions that are now understood to have a significant sympathetic tone component. So kind of a new resurgence and, and autoimmune disorders as well. So new resurgence of um, sort of interest and research looking at are, are there are there switches you can turn on and off that would affect some of these chronic diseases, allow mm-hmm. you to manage them or uh, reverse them in some cases? So it's it's actually yes, breathed a, a fair amount of new life into the whole space. That's really exciting. Go, going back into your your background, you mentioned uh, you're you're heading the neuro, neurological group at Medtronic. You're also uh, had leadership positions in CRM and heart valve and cardiac surgery. It sounds like you really uh, uh, had a, a a lot of majors at Medtronic University. Uh, what was that ex- experience like? Uh, is it is it uh, is it really a, a a sort of a whole different type of business school? Is it is it? Uh, do you learn the kind of lessons that uh, that stay with you forever uh, when you work at Medtronic? Uh, yeah, I guess in my case, the answer is yes. It was a tremendous experience. I was there almost 17 years and had the, the opportunity, maybe unusually at the time, but the opportunity to work in three or four different business units, including four years in Europe. Um, and they were different enough. And in one case, the European experience was sort of rescuing a troubled uh, perfusion, the oxygenator business, which was sort of the redheaded stepchild of the industry back then. So, uh, you know, it was uh, a number of really interesting complementary experiences all underneath the Medtronic umbrella and all with a similar approach to how you look at a market and how you deploy resources and how you commercially, um, you know, develop and uh, bring therapies to standard of care. So for me, it was a, you know, a fundamental learning experience um, across all those different markets that I draw on still almost every day. And obviously the people you're surrounded by, it's it's a great network. You know, ironically, when you're, at those big companies and you're in the middle of your career and your head's down and you're working hard, you don't really need the network outside of the company because you've got everything you need. At least at Medtronic, there were rooms full of people that would cover every single potential functional need. 
as a startup guy now, especially now back in Minneapolis, it's really uh, remarkable that sort of Medtronic alumni network is extremely valuable, mm-hmm. as I'm sure it is with the Boston Scientific folks and St. Jude and others here. But that's really uh, something you never appreciate until you leave and you're running a little company and you're trying to find good people to help do all the things you do at Medtronic without thinking about. And it's that same network you call on. So it's, it's really a, it's an interesting kind of flip side of the coin and, and something I didn't appreciate nearly as much and didn't get to see as much in California because there isn't the depth of the Medtronic network out there. We're going to take just a quick break from this conversation with Kevin to remind you to go to medtechconference.com. Check out the agenda that we're putting together. Register, and we'll see you in Minneapolis on June 1st. Back to the conversation. Yeah, you did go there. And interestingly enough, you, you, after listing all those areas that you were involved with Medtronic, your, uh, your next step when leaving was to, to join Visiogen, an ophthalmology company, and one that had a really successful outcome, of course. How did, uh, how did that move come about? Well, I had been uh, I had I had been thinking about the startup experience for four or five years at that point, and had been actively well, you know, maybe passive is a better word, but open to discussions and having them regularly about opportunities. The challenge I had was at that point in my career at Medtronic, I was working for Bill Hawkins and running a uh, a pan Medtronic initiative to try to understand the evolving healthcare space. So I had a non compete that covered every single business Medtronic was in <laughs> and any businesses that they intended to get into, I think for five years or something. And I had just helped write the strategic plan for the company that year. So I was, I was about as uh, conflicted as I possibly could get. So it <laughs> left me with teeth and eyes. Those were the only two industry segments I, where I thought I had some chance to, to steer clear of the, of the non-compete. And in this case, um, you know, the uh, really interesting opportunity came to me through a headhunter, and uh, it was in the ophthalmology space, which people may know is all in Irvine, California, 95% of it. So the California thing was uh, unavoidable, and it was a chance to to try to start up and to do it in a way that didn't um, conflict with my commitments to Medtronic and my interest in not competing with them, at least not right off the bat. It was a great, it was a win-win, and it meant moving the family 1,500 miles west, but it was an adventure, and we had young kids, so it was, it was doable. So it ultimately turned out, thankfully, uh, favorably on, on multiple levels. How, what are the similarities and differences uh, between ophthalmology and, and all the other sectors you, uh, you were involved with? Is it, is it just another sector or, or was there a lot of learning that you had to do to, to, to execute well there? Well, you know, in my case, there was a lot of learning, and it, it's, a, it's a really interesting space. I really enjoyed it. At that time, it was relatively uh, insular, and there weren't a lot of people that came into or out of ophthalmology. So they often looked at me as a cardi- cardiovascular guy, and they said, what are you doing here? How would you get here? You know, we've all worked together for 25 years. We don't know who you are. So there was a little bit of the new guy thing I had to break through, but it's a fascinating um, industry sector. It's much more about physics. Um, in the physics of optics, um, then then you, you spend a lot more time learning about those sort of principles than you ever would in a pacemaker or defib business or neurostimulator. So there was a lot to learn, and I, I was uh, clearly behind and always playing catch-up. But it was a really interesting, great great customers, very commercially savvy. The, the uh, anterior um, segment ophthalmologists, you know, they run uh, very sophisticated practices, and they they deal with cash pay patients as well as Medicare and insurers. So it's a, it's a fascinating business from that standpoint. So I, I really enjoyed it. And the, and the company was acquired by AMO, a favorable outcome. What, uh, at that point, what were you looking to do next? Well, you know, and that, that acquisition occurred rather uh, somewhat to our surprise. Uh, you know, within months of Abbott acquiring AMO, 
the combined entity then turned around and approached us. And so it was a, you know, kind of a, a speedy a whirlwind process. Um, so I spent six months at Abbott um, and then decided not to join them in Chicago and not to pursue big company careers. Um, and at the time, uh, the Versant folks were uh, probably in year seven or eight of Cameron Health, which happened to be just a couple miles down the, the street from where I was living. And they contacted me and said, hey, we're, we're entering the next chapter at Cameron. We need a commercial leader to help us guide the strategy in Europe and prepare for our U.S. launch. And so it just sort of, I guess it was serendipitous. And uh, it was not without some challenges. It was a you know, tremendous idea and opportunity, but a tough uh, capital intensive long road with, you know, a number of investors that were tapped out and uh, frustrated. So it was a, uh, a challenge to be sure, but I inherited a great team from a really competent uh, technical CEO that, uh, you know, worked miracles to develop the product that many said couldn't be developed. So it had great raw material and was headed in the right direction. So it was a, a great chance for me to step into the CEO role and guide it through the last chapter. Go, go and I want to talk about Cameron in a second because it's a great story. But the Visiogen, I didn't realize that uh, that the deal was su such a came upon so quickly. Was there uh, any resistance to selling at the time? Did you did you have a longer game plan in mind that you wanted to adhere to, or did the uh, the sale become pretty? It was pretty apparent early on that this was the right move. Yeah, for no, we had a we had a longer game plan, absolutely, and we're launching in Europe and getting some great early traction. We had finished enrollment in our U.S. trial, which had a three-year follow-up. So we were preparing to submit to the FDA uh, when we were approached. And, you know, at, at that time, at least, AMO was not, uh, was not in an acquisitive mood, and Alcon wasn't moving because they didn't have to, and B&L was going through some challenges. So we didn't think there was an active M&A market in ophthalmology, at least at that point. So we were hunkered down and ready to launch, uh, launching in Europe and ready to launch in the U.S., and we're going to play it out two, three, four years. And it was a, the president of the opium market is obviously a very interesting market. Um, kind of one of the holy grails in ophthalmology. So we were in a, an interesting space and thought we could continue to raise the money we needed. In fact, we had just raised, uh, I think $40 million uh, several months before we were approached. Mm -hmm. So um, we were going to play it out longer, but you know that you don't, um, companies are bought, not sold. So we were uh, sucked into the process and it um, accelerated and had uh, got competitive. And it's one of those situations where, um, you know, if, if the opportunity presents itself, sometimes it's worth jumping, even if the timing doesn't match your original plan. Sure. And now, and now fast forward again, back to Cameron. Uh, what, so going into that, you, you outlaid, you laid out some of the challenges that you were faced with. Um, did you see this as a, 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 a turnaround type of story or just a redirection or how going into that, that company did you see it as, as some what was what was your mindset going into into Cameron what needed to be done well you know it was a overall it was a, a, an honor and a thrill to be able to get involved and I had been aware of Cameron for at that point uh, almost 10 years back to when I was involved with Med I was the commercial head of Medtronic's defib business so I was quite familiar with who they were but they'd been in stealth mode for years I hadn't thought about them for years until I was approached about the opportunity so I knew it was a really compelling um, idea uh, did not know at that point you know what the clinical data looked like or what the state of the company was but as I got under the hood yeah I, I turnaround is much too strong a word I think uh, it was a, a transition and they were moving from a really tough long seven-year development cycle into the next chapter of the company 
and my predecessor had uh, done a lot of great work to, to prepare the ground for that. So for me, it was on some levels natural to move into a situation where they were struggling with their European commercialization effort. I understood that. I knew that market and I knew the, the product. So that was an area where I could quickly help um, bring in a new team and, um, you know, tweak our approach with, with uh, positive effect. Uh, and similarly in the U.S. to help prepare for the U.S. launch and to spend a little more time um, externally talking to the markets and talking to bankers and raising additional financing. We raised $107 million, um, in a Series F shortly after I got out there, uh, which was not easily done, but uh, transformational for the company and gave us a new lease on life. And it was also spending increasing time with Boston Scientific, who had a longstanding option um, to acquire the company, but one that had been sort of dormant at least in the last couple of years. So a lot of interesting multifaceted challenge. Obviously, we had probably close to 200 employees and two or three facilities. We're, we're manufacturing the device entirely ourselves. So all the stuff that comes along with a complex, sophisticated, capital-intensive manufacturing process. So really interesting, big startup, late stage, lots of issues, but you know, thankfully ones that I was somewhat familiar with and could help with. And a great, great starting raw materials. And once again, uh, the, the acquisition by Boston Scientific was it a case where it kind of caught you off guard? I remember that being at a an interesting outcome. It was it was obviously it's always nice to be acquired, but there was kind of a bittersweet uh, element to it as well. Um, how, how did the acquisition come together? Yeah, and I think it was a deal that was signed in two thousand three um, with an investment by Boston Scientific. Uh, it had a number of milestones at that point, I think people thought it was probably two or three years to those triggers. And then they'd, just, they'd see what the result was, and they'd either get out of jail and be on their own and independent, or they'd become part of Boston Scientific. So um, ultimately, it was 10 years later that, that those triggers um, happened. And I think, you know, there was a, a cottage industry of people prognosticating over whether Boston would do the deal and whether they <laughs> wouldn't. And so, you know, it, it's one of those things we were focused on building the best company we could. Um, keeping it financed, uh, keeping the quality levels um, absolutely unwavering, as you have to with an implantable defibrillator. And we sort of said, we'll, we'll uh, let the Boston process play out as it will, and we'll prepare a parallel path if they choose not to acquire the company, um, which we were uh, you know, in, in process. We had two different sets of bankers working the issues. Um, but ultimately, they were, uh, I think, impressed enough with the clinical trial data, which knocked uh, everyone's socks off, including our own. Um, and the speed with which the FDA engaged and sped the product through the process, I think, uh, impressed upon Boston that this is a truly unique and highly effective solution to one of the challenges with um, transvenous ICDs. And so ultimately, they made that decision. But it, it was a bit of a surprise, and not until the 11th hour did we know definitively that they, they were going to do it. They were playing it close to the vest as well. And from what I hear, it's it's working out to be a real uh, a a great return though for investors. It's taking time to build, but uh, but the the price is going up and up as the as the milestones are being met. It is, yeah. And and at the time, it's a it's an unusual deal. It, it was not unusual in two thousand three, um, probably a little more unusual now. But it has a six year earnout. So the total proceeds of the deal were it's public. They were one point three billion dollars. But a, a good chunk of that was on the back end of the deal. So it looked like a three hundred million dollar deal back in twenty twelve. Uh, but in fact, it's uh, multiples of that already, and the potential is to get uh, above a billion and even to, towards the, the max. So we're still uh, living through that process with uh, with our our colleagues at Boston, and uh, 
while no one likes the idea of a six-year earnout, um, you know, I'm impressed with what they're doing with the product. You could always hope that they do more when you're in a situation like we are. We, we obviously, uh, they own it, and it's their product to, to market and sell as they wish, but I think they're thinking about it the same way we are. And uh, they understand that this, uh, in, in the ICD market, it is seldom that you have anything very differentiated for very long. Typically, you measure it in months as is this case with quadrupolar leads and MRI safe devices, you know, maybe you get a year head start, but that's about it. So the idea that they will have now had a three year window without a single competing device and probably another two or three years before Medtronic or St. Jude can respond. It's, it's pretty unique. And that does not happen often in CRM. So mm-hmm. we're, uh, we're pleased and uh, cheering them on from the sidelines and hoping they sell as many as they can during this earnout period. This is a question that you often ask, ask people, but does, could a Cameron Health let's let's talk about today's medtech market? Can a Cameron Health that type of company requiring that level of capital, looking to implement that that type of change, can those deals get done in 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 today's medtech market? I think probably not. Um, to be to be honest, at least not in CRM. Um, and I think even still uh, with the Versant team and and the former investors, you know that was a long slog. We raised. Uh, it's probably public, but well over $300 million um, to get that company across the line over almost 13 years. So that's, uh, that's about as capital intensive as, and high stakes. An implantable defibrillator um, is probably as tough as it gets mm-hmm. from a capital side, quality side, liability, et cetera. So I think those sorts of deals on that scale probably don't make sense in this environment. And ultimately, it will be a, uh, a profitable investment for all of those investors. They've had to wait a little longer than they'd like to get the proceeds out of the earnout, but it will, in the end, actually turn out pretty well. And I, and I think that's this final topic, the, the, the MedTech Conference. Very happy to have you involved as, as co-chair of the MedTech Conference. Um, Thank you. It's uh, in, in, the, in the agenda. Folks can take a look at the agenda on, on medtechconference.com. It's, it's really an ambitious agenda. I think we're, we're tackling a, a lot of issues in medtech. And it's not, it's not all, it's not doom and gloom. I mean, it's actually a real, I think it's a time of rebirth. I think there's a lot of new types of uh, approaches uh, that are getting attention. There's, we're going to highlight some really interesting technologies like robotics and uh, some approaches like, like consumer uh, at, the, at the conference. What is your, if you're talking to uh, a young person today who's in their mid-20s, they're getting out of business school, they want to get into medtech, and they ask you, what, for your assessment of the industry, what is your assessment of the medtech industry? Well, I think, uh, you know, at 100,000 feet, it's a fantastic way to make a living, to work with really uh, intelligent people around the world and help humanity. So there's no question um, on a, a psychological um, compensation level, it's as good as it's ever been. It's more complicated today than it was 20-some years ago when I started. But the fundamental need and the, and the demographic trends um, are not going away. And clearly, there are patients and the impact of chronic disease, better understood now than ever, is, is significant. So there's huge opportunities to help people and to help the system more effectively treat chronic disease. Um, secondly, the strategic uh, companies are doing less and less of their own R&D, and so they are um, in need of innovation and speed and agility more than ever. And the combination of those two, I think, makes for um, a long-term um, opportunity that's not going to go away. What's a little trickier is in the short term, you've got tremendous pricing pressure. You've got changes in the way these devices are sold and who makes a decision uh, on a particular brand. 
then you've got uh, you know FDA challenges that have lengthened the exit cycles, which makes it harder and harder to raise venture capital and and tougher and tougher to invest profitably in these ventures. So I think the days of the of the inch up or the Me Too product um, that's developed in three or four years for forty fifty million dollars and you know and sold for a hundred or hundred and twenty five those days are probably gone. Mm-hmm. And what you have are the great big opportunities, lots of them late stage now that are, you know, in interesting markets with differentiated technologies and and markets where there could be two or three or four potential buyers. So kind of the hallmarks of an interesting venture environment. On the other end, you've got a handful of big ideas on the, on the front end of the pipeline that can indeed get access to capital. So it's not doom and gloom for the right idea in the right market. Um, you can indeed raise a Series A round or a Series B round. But it's the stuff that's uh, maybe less exciting and it's more about incremental improvements that are harder and harder um, to make happen in this environment. And it's the, I think the, the big guys are less likely uh, to pay for those sorts of opportunities because they're not able to extract any sort of pricing premiums in the market for them. And, and that's I, one guy's opinion no, from a, I, you know, Minneapolis at least. <laughs> and I think that's where we want to be. I mean, the, the, the sort of me too small ball approach you know, made sense at the time to kind of I guess keep uh, keep the sector moving forward, but ideally, I think anyone who's in this to to is is in this to really make a wholesale change to how people are treated and, and how technology is incorporated into healthcare. Absolutely, and, yeah. and that's why I'm, you know, the the late stage guy or whoever that writer described me. I'm <laughs> I'm in an early stage venture because uh, type two diabetes is one of those markets where there is virtually no device presence, $19 billion pharma market, 23 million Americans with type 2 diabetes and another 80 that are pre-diabetic, 63% of them can't control their diabetes with oral meds and lifestyle uh, intervention and diet and exercise, et cetera. They won't go on insulin, most of them, they never do. So, you know, a huge opportunity for the device companies to say, you know, what's our play in this huge chronic health problem that's costing the U.S. government, um, you know, billions and billions of dollars. And so that's an example of one of these markets where if you can figure out the right way for a device-based intervention to help these patients and the system, it's going to be a win-win-win. And in that case, you can indeed raise money and you can interest investors, strategic and institutional, in the kinds of technologies that our industry has produced and could apply in a new market like this one. Excellent. Well, we'll let, we'll let that comment close out this podcast, the closer, Kevin Hikes. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I read the one article that you're not happy with the description with, but, uh, but I think it was, yeah, I, it was a positive yep. description. Well intended, I think. So thank <laughs> right. you. Well, very happy to have you on this podcast and, of course, helping with, with the MedTech Conference. It'll be uh, uh, June 1st in, in Minneapolis, which is a, a nicer time of year, I gather, uh, to be in town. Well, but uh, we love Minneapolis. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a great thanks. city. No need for ice skates. You'll be fine. <laughs> Good. Excellent. I don't have the ankles for it. Kevin, thanks for the time. You're welcome. Thank you, Tom. Kevin Hikes, thank you, first of all, for all the work you've done on the MedTech Conference. It's uh, an outstanding agenda. Listeners, please go to medtechconference.com. Check it out. And uh, Kevin, thanks for your time today joining us on the MedTech Talk podcast. A lot of great uh, great lessons and uh, great accounts of uh, some of the more important and interesting deals in MedTech. So uh, thanks for sharing your story. And remember, everyone else, go to medtechconference.com, register to attend the event, and we will see you in Minneapolis. 